I don't know whether we still uh, talk of ESG in five years or in 10 years from now, but it doesn't really matter because this process continues. Innovations in Sustainable Finance. A University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel. I'm very excited to have on the podcast Dr. Philip Abbey, the founder and CEO of RepRisk, an ESG data provider based in Zurich. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. It's a great pleasure to have you. And um, transparency is going to be a topic we want to talk about. And, and for transparency's sake, I want to disclose that I sit on an academic advisory council of RepRisk, and I've also worked there a long time ago as a student. Um, so I have some links with RepRisk, but the real reason Philip is here is that there are very exciting and innovative things going on at RepRisk that we would like to talk about. First of all, tell us a little bit about what does RepRisk do in a nutshell? What is the product? I give you three answers. Number one, we are ESG data providers specialized on ESG issues. That's anything from deforestation or child labor or corruption. Number two, it's a due diligence service for our clients like banks and investors and supply chain managers to find out about such issues. And number three, we are ESG technology company because we have great technology, more specifically machine learning, that allows us to identify any text documents related to these issues based on millions of what is called label documents that we have collected over the last 17 years that allows us to provide exactly this due diligence and ESG data service. Okay, so you use various means, technological and human as well, to find out what companies do wrong in a sense. Yes, we prefer to say what the conduct of companies is. Okay. So we also call that business conduct. Yeah. Um, and uh, I very much believe in transparency when it comes to business conduct, not to people's private life, but business conduct. And we provide this transparency so that better decisions can be made from a point of view, as I said before, investor or uh, giving a credit or um, uh, sourcing a product. Can you give me a concrete use case of how someone would, would use the data that you provide? Well, actually, we started 2006. This was the uh, starting year with the due diligence service of banks. It's called um, Know Your Client. So basically, uh, the example before about financing, you give a credit to a company, you help them otherwise, for example, with, uh, with trade finance, etc., or um, on the advisory side, helping them with IPO, listing them on a, on, a, on a stock exchange. And then you want to know, well, wait a second, does this company actually is associated with labor issues? Um, is it actually um, associated with things like uh, adverse impact on biodiversity? Um, are there fraud issues? So that's how we started. So you provide data and, and transparency about business conduct, and, and you're in the business since 2006. Now, over that time, there has been tremendous technological progress on, on a number of fronts. And, uh, you know, recalling back in the days how, how everything started to today, I'm sure the processes have, have uh, evolved massively. So in, in which ways has technology changed the way you go about this identifying information about misconduct? Well, first of all, um, technology helps us to do things much more efficient. So, so when, when we started basically having um, um, email newsletters, so even have a box with, with some interesting magazines from non-governmental organizations, etc. And, and the process was much more random in 2006. Nowadays, we make a very thorough job that, that, that we make sure that 
any information you can get about a certain company related to these ESG issues, actually, can we can cover that. So, um, so technology helps us to 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 get that job done because obviously we could we could hire another thousand analysts and 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 we couldn't um, uh, do that with just um, human intelligence. So, so when did it dawn on you that these new machine learning tools? could be a big deal for RepRisk? Was there some sort of aha moment? Well, not really. I mean, funny enough, already in, in 2008, 2009, we actually um, asked a, a specialized service provider to help us with such a classification tool. We call classifier because it classified documents. And by, by this we mean, okay, this is a document related, in example, before regard, with respect to child labor and, and this company, etc. But it didn't work. Okay. We, we, it's actually quite a funny story because we wasted so much resources. We had so many people basically then, then classifying the documents and after about two years we found out it doesn't work. So the, the promises of artificial intelligence, I mean, they have been there for a long, long time. I also remember in the 90s when I still was at university, this whole thing of, of, of artificial intelligence and what can be achieved and, and, and actually was pretty poor. The, the, the first thing I remember with respect to the machine learning classifier were really was image processing. That's one of the first things. Let's say you have a, a satellite image of the of the rainforest, and you wanted to know, okay, is that now a, a primary rainforest which had a different uh, shade of green, or is it a secondary forest, or is it a, a linear structure like a road? So this was pretty much what you could do in the nineties. Um, but the promise was always there. But the breakthrough, I think, it's pretty fair to say. Um, um, for, for most people, it became really visible with, with Google Translation, and that's when we when we really realized the time is now, and we could use these millions of documents for, for this training purpose. I think the the process at Repris, right? It, it involves, and and maybe I'm oversimplifying, but but roughly two steps. One is identifying all the documents that are relevant that contain reference to a company to some potential misconduct, and then the second step is interpreting what is actually in this document after you've done that filtering. And uh, you know, determine how severe the misconduct has been. So maybe focusing on the on the second part, how would you characterize the? Uh, I think Gary Kasparov had this famous statement that you know, after the chess computer beat him repeatedly, he said, "Well, he believes the strongest combination you can have is human plus machine." So in that, it's a difficult task, right, to sort of really summarize what is in the news. Is it now? Uh, was it willful? Was it by accident? All, all these details that, that come with it. How would you characterize the cooperation between human and machine in that task? Well, first of all, regarding chess computers, um, you say Kasparov, was that his name? I think so. Uh, I think he's wrong. Um, it's not true because chess is something uh, uh, a human can never beat the machine. I mean, the first thing uh, is pretty much to machine learning as we do for this document classification that you look what happened in the past, right? You can analyze all these different games that took place. But the funny thing about the chess is it's it's uh, it's absolutely rule-based. So you can actually really predict if you have enough computer power what happens if, if you take option A and then option B and then option C and, and you can basically, in, in all these different um, uh, options that are possible in the future, you, with two days computer power, you can actually calculate what is the best uh, thing to happen. So I think he is wrong. You don't need uh, humans at all. The humans just have to come up with the, uh, with the rules. Well, in, in most real-world uh, examples, it's, it's, it's a bit more complicated, right? Especially when it's about uh, a text and, and, and this means uh, language. It doesn't matter if it's text or audio files, etc. It's, it's about language. 
So here, basically, the the, the computer spec get better with their with their. You can't say even understanding, but 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 uh, with the processing of of, of such information, and uh, it's actually quite uh, surprising that it was possible to have this breakthrough. So if if you think, um, if if you make a sentence, I I, I could say you know. Um, uh, last time I was in France, I really uh, did not believe that I enjoyed it so much because because I remember that at school I had such difficulties with this language. That's a famous example. I didn't make mm-hmm. that up. So the sound, the usual sense is, is a bit different. But now you understand, I talk about French, right? So how can the computer find out that I talk about uh, French language, right? Instead of France. Yeah, because it started with France, and, yeah. and then how can you make a, 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 the computer? How can you make connection? The way that really works nowadays, actually, the computer then goes back, uh, so plays the plays sentence forwards and backwards. You could say it this way, and 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 they keep some information and 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 etc. So it's amazing uh, what it, what is possible. But it's also amazing, by the way, that then basically you can start with long, one language and then basically can use the same so-called neural network uh, for the next language, and you just have to to change. You, you can imagine like the last layer of your um, uh, network, which means choosing different parameters, etc., then it still works. So it can go from uh, from a language um, that when you look at it written, um, looks completely different uh, f- from English, for example, to Russian. works quite well. It's, it's, it's quite funny. Anyway, but what I'm saying is um, uh, when in real life, and, and, and language is a good example of real life, because there, there are no clear rules. There are some rules, um, but usually for, for us German speakers, I mean, you, you're not even aware of the rules. So just know this is correct, right? And and you could say the computer in a way is, is, is similar after a while. Just uh, this is correct, you know. The, the other way, I don't know why I use this verb and not this verb, and, and why, why I use this funny ending, etc. But it's correct, right? So so it's it's not that the computer knows the rules like in chess, but 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 uh, with experience, like a child that gets older, you master the language, right? But still, there's so many nuances, right? And and for me, for example, that are learning English for 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 more than 40 years now, there's still so many things I have to look up when I, when I, when I read a book or, or um, uh, read the Financial Times in, in, in the morning. So, so here you need human intelligence. Only the humans can actually say, if I go back to the example before with Apple, that here Apple is, is, is really mentioned as a company that allegedly has a bad conduct with respect to their supply chain. Because it could well be that, that the article is about Apple and then it mentions another company, um, let's say Dell, um, just to be mean to Dell. And, and, uh, and then they say, okay, Dell actually is very bad with supply chain, but Apple on the other hand is great. You know, It's, it's, it's not a, a real example, but you, but you get there idea. Only humans and basically see that this article is, is all positive. So, so for example, in this um, sentiment analysis I mentioned before, they probably wouldn't even pick the article if, if you just make it based on sentiment analysis so on, on, on machine learning. Yes, but sentiment analysis wouldn't even pick the article. But when you, when you had um, uh, taken it, then basically, then you would wrongly assume that uh, that Apple was, was mentioned in a negative way. So that's why you always need the humans for, for quality assurance and, and for interpretation and uh, or confirmation of interpretation, uh, to be clear because what you do is completely rule-based. And the other thing is to produce more of this raw material that you can then feed back to, to the computer that you call uh, training data sets. In, in that respect, with training, of course, you had a, you had a great resource to, to, to use based on the, I don't know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of documents that you had already classified at that point. It often strikes me that, they, of course, there are you know, absolutely amazing advances in the technology, of natural language processing, but then at the end of the day, 
value accrues often to those that already have the great training data sets uh, or, or, or simply have access to, to data troves, uh, you know, such as the Amazon and, and Facebook. They just know a lot about people and that's when machine learning becomes really, really interesting. Very, very true. If, if I just can add something here uh, for those less familiar with, with machine learning. So nowadays, um, the data are so important. Well, well, the 90s I mentioned before about image processing and, and, and classifications regarding signal pixels which are point in, 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 in the picture. At that time, the problem was, um, one of the problems was, was uh, computer power. So, so when when I as a as a PhD student made a mistake uh, in in the program, there was a semicolon too much or something. Next morning it came in, everything was for nothing. I basically could drink coffee the whole day and and then then run the whole program again overnight. So computer power was 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 a, was a, was, a, was a big problem. Um, the second actually is what what is different nowadays. Now all these algorithms are for free. So um, Google, Facebook, um, all these companies actually provide you the software for free. Isn't that absolutely unbelievable? So it the is. only thing that uh, confines you um, in, in, in getting good results are the this labeled data. And labeled data means, uh, in our case, for example, you have a you have a document, let's say a newspaper article in um, Korean, and it's it's linked to to certain labor issues. But you need thousands of them. But actually, already in 2015, we already had eight million uh, labeled documents. Wow! Yeah. So, so that's also what I what I observe, and I I thought was was very exciting in in the case of Reprisk that there was not just the technology there at this point, but also uh, a real basis of of human grade classified documents uh, that that the machines can then learn from. So I'm sure there was a a time period in which you experimented with these new tools and and, and uh, explored how you could integrate them in the existing workflow. So in between this time, when when it came up and it became clear that this actually does work, and and now, how has it yeah you know, how has it affected the analysis process? Well, it's it's completely different. But but let me first say that the amazing thing is that with this um, filtering I, I said before on the sentiment analysis, actually you could um, achieve quite amazing results. It it, it just became impossible uh, to do the same way when we all of a sudden had 23 languages and about 500,000 documents uh, a day. So um, it works very well with human intelligence, it's just very work intensive. And, and nowadays, even though we have um, uh, the biggest number of analysts in, in our company history, about 150, we still can um, use them for, for, for different purposes. Um, and, and, and one of the things is that, that we recently, for example, is that we also combine uh, this data with, uh, with a completely da different data set, which is uh, geospatial data. So, for example, if, if in a text document it said a company built a mine, let's say a gold mine somewhere in, in the uh, jungle in Peru, um, and this is um, associated with some, uh, I don't know, um, violations with respect to, to, to private security companies, just an example, then, then we could also pin down this, this, this very mine in, in terms of the GPS coordinates and, and see do we get additional information. For example, do we get information that this mine is, is, is also just next to a protected area? And this also, again, needs a, needs a human um, input, especially when you set it up. 
Um, because uh, for projects, for example, one thing is what is the name of the project? How can you identify that? As soon as you have a have a database uh, linked with, with GPS coordinates, it, it it seems like an easy thing. But to link that to our database that we built over the last seventeen years, there's no way you can match that. So that's another example where you where you need uh, human analysis. So the work will never run out uh, in in terms of human analysis, but but it's it's very different nowadays. So nowadays our analysts just touch I don't know maybe 800,000 documents uh, a day so, so very very few um, and wait 800,000 they touch that's that seems like a lot wait it's 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 no, 800, so 800 ah. to 1,000, thanks okay. for asking. Yes, yeah. yes, so there are about 500,000 coming in, um, uh, and then the eight, 800, I don't even know the latest numbers, they, they, they really have a they touch, which means that they do anything uh, with it. So it's a huge reduction in, 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 in scope, I want to say. Um, but but they don't run out of work because of probably we, we combine that with, uh, with, with, uh, with new data. And in addition, what I said before, we, we add new languages. Whenever you add new languages, it's it's a lot of work to see what what the what the machine learned actually automatically by going from one language to to, to another, whether this actually works. And then you have to generate again this is uh, this is, is, is treasure of data that you can do the machine learning with. So the human analysis is always important, always there, but but it changes uh, uh, the way people do the work. I'd like to touch upon another subject, and, and that is, you know, it doesn't sound as innovative uh, on the face of it, but transparency, I believe, is really quite a profound innovation in, in the greater, you know, let me say, sociopolitical context and, and business conduct. So, specifically to Reprisk, uh, you know, there are, um, there are, of course, many ESG data providers out there, but, but you found a niche, which is really this... I would call it the creation or the sort of, uh, you know, the basically create or bring transparency to the business conduct of firms local, but also very far away, large and small, really sort of to, to create this visibility of what companies are doing at the other end of the world. Is that a fair characterization of what, what it's fundamentally about? Fully agree. That's, that's also actually our mission. So our mission is, is provide this transparency on business conduct. So basically, that companies and businesses get accountable, and they basically um, can can help to, to to make a better world or contribute to that the world gets better. Um, so that's actually so fundamental that it's it's really our mission. Um, and I think in addition to transparency, um, that is really changing business conduct in my view in in a positive way. The other thing is that they are changing expectations from from what is called stakeholders, and stakeholders is really shareholders. I mean, I mentioned the investors before, but also employees, um, academics. You could call tangential stakeholders because they're not directly related to to the business of the company, but they can have a, have an influence. So, so the combination of these two things, the transparency and the, the increasing expectations from stakeholders, that's really driving change. And um, I don't know whether we still uh, talk of ESG in five years or in 10 years from now, but it doesn't really matter because this process uh, continues. And ESG in this sense uh, started long before um, 2018, 19, when it became uh, rather popular. I mean, the term is, is, is a bit older, but started, for, uh, for example, already when I still was working in the pharmaceutical industry. 
um, and I could do many things that would be considered as corruption nowadays. For example, I'm inviting someone, a medical doctor, to a conference um, uh, with their partner, business class. I mean, that's nowadays uh, corruption. So here, the example is not transparent. The example is different expectations, right? Um, and the other uh, thing in the pharmaceutical industry that I found so fascinating is uh, nowadays all the clinical trials and the corresponding results are are actually um, available uh, for for everyone. So there's transparency about that, uh, and this is because there was a was a scandal um, more than 15 years ago about one drug that had very uh, adverse uh, side effects. Um, so basically, then again, the uh, the transparency combined with the expectations of stakeholders has fundamentally changed the pharma. Industry fundamentally, it's a very different business. It's still about innovation and 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 uh, improving the, the patients' lives, but the way it's done, it's it's fundamentally different. Not only the way the sales and marketing is done, the commercial operations, but even the way research is done. So um, so this I think um, changes uh, the, the way we, we we do business. Businesses um, behave, conduct, and 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 that's why I believe this mission is so important. And it, I think it goes in, in lockstep, right? The expectations can only change if you know about it. And, and, and many things, maybe still today, but certainly back then, just happened somewhere uh, that you wouldn't necessarily find out about. And, and at the same time, if, if conduct is, you know, if it's in line with expectations, it's not news. It only becomes news when it somehow violates expectations that others might reasonably have. I mean, there are limits probably to transparency as well, right? It, it, if it's if it just stops with transparency and we're all, you know, in this day and age overloaded a bit with information, um, then, you know, we, we still need action beyond that, I think, to really change things. But But in my view, it's an essential piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. Um, but coming back to what you said before, I think it's still the case. And, and, and uh, we always have a little bit of feeling that this is accelerating, that also expectations are changing. I, I mean, great example is a, is a Me Too movement. So it's not only that we lack transparency uh, about behavior of, about certain people in Hollywood. I mean, uh, even in Switzerland, it was well known that some people uh, in, in Hollywood um, don't behave necessarily uh, the way you would expect them to, to behave. And, and, and uh, this was somehow um, uh, accepted, so there was some transparency here. But then in 2017, everything could change, right? And, and uh, another example uh, that actually um, rather proves your point or gives evidence of viewpoints is, is human rights, you know, for, for, for also a generation of, of, of my parents uh, uh, born before or in the war, um, they had very similar view on, on, on human rights, right? Um, but there was no transparency. I mean, we didn't know what, what Swiss mining companies did in, in, in Congo or in, in Latin America, etc. Um, so, so, so I think both, both trends are, are important. Um, and as I said, sometimes I think that uh, the, the change in stakeholder expectations is, is even accelerating but you, you but both are important for for, for companies perspectives and and um, the thing is now um, because there's so much transparency nowadays because of technology and everyone has a mobile phone and you can take photos of, of, of uh, bad workplace conditions or you can record um, conversations at work etc it's it's increasingly important we haven't talked about this one aspect um, to find out what information really matters right or what data really matters so that it becomes a, a intelligence that you can act upon so the whole question of, of, of quantification of metrics and, and I just mentioned that because 
um, we do data science, first of all, because we do machine learning, but we also do data science because we um, develop metrics that help us to, to see certain patterns um, with respect to, to this uh, business conduct, which then helps our clients uh, to come to the right conclusions. What is that metric? How does it work? Well, there, there are several of them, depending on, on the purpose. I mean, I mean we started, uh, the name of the company is, uh, is RepRisk, uh, that uh, stands for Reputational Risk. And uh, the first metric we did was, was a Reputational Risk metric. So basically, we could say, okay, uh, there's an increasing uh, risk associated with the company that that uh, if, if a certain conduct actually um, gets uh, a bigger attention that these guys uh, run into trouble. Um, and, and this is possible because we detect what we call such ESG risk incidents in, in, in as I said, in, in a lot of languages and also at the local level. Let's say that uh, we have a, a local newspaper, local NGO, um, identify something. And if this and all of a sudden gets um, uh, covered by the Wall Street Journal or any other um, important newspaper, then this specific conduct might, might, might perceive to be very, very negatively for the company and then it takes reputation um, hit. So, so we try to to um, uh, quantify this, for example. And then what is increasingly important for our clients is, is, is a compliance aspect. Let's say that you're a pension fund or a sovereign uh, state fund and, and, and uh, you have uh, certain expectations with respect to the companies you invest in. Uh, let's say, for example, uh, no uh, forced labor. Um, and then we quantify um, based on what companies really do. Obviously, it's, it's all about what companies do, not their policies, etc. Um, are there cases of, um, of uh, forced labor? Is it actually systematic? Does, does it uh, cover many people, etc.? So this is uh, what we call a, a violator metric because it's about a violation of an internal policy or then of a international standards like a ILO standard international labor organization or human rights statements, etc. But to be clear, so if you take information from a local newspaper or even uh, it might be in an NGO blog, Right, you you don't do a fact check on this story, right? It's more uh, a signal. Somebody said, "Company X did Y." Absolutely, and and therefore it's very important. What source is it? Yeah, we cannot say uh, whether sources are true or not in in terms of what they report on, but we can say how important they are. So, in in the case of the Wall Street Journal I mentioned before, I mean, even if uh, if there's a fake allegation. Um, uh, this uh, bad reputation resulting from that, uh, this is perception is reality, right? Uh, so basically, we look at look at the um, uh, sources, but we also look basically are there several sources uh, reporting on that? And for the NGOs, non-government organizations, and and um, uh, newspaper outlets, etc., there's also a certain uh, uh, economy behind it. You know, it, it's it's usually in the environmental, social, governance space, not worth the effort uh, to report on something um, that uh, is absolutely untrue. That's not politics. Where basically you you try sometimes to come up with any dirt you you can invent. Um, but but uh, there's so much, um, you could say, bad conduct going on in the business world, it's absolutely no reason that you invent something, right? So so the question is what you focus on. And that's mm -hmm. hugely unfair, don't get me wrong. So, so usually big multinationals, Western multinationals, they get blamed for many, many things so that, that um, investors and others actually pay attention to that. But the NGOs usually don't have to um, uh, invent stuff. So, so for that reason, it's, it's quite different to the, to the political space. 
Um, and when you then have smart metrics to find out is something systematic, um, uh, does it actually happen again after a certain time frame? We have here a rule we call the six-week rule. Um, it's a six-week rule because uh, seven times um, six is 42, and we know that 42 is the answer to everything. Um, so, uh, But joking aside, um, if, if, if something gets repeated after six weeks, it's, it's a pretty good indication that... Um, uh, that something is, is is really happening on the ground, um, because when you see how how, how the media world uh, functions, that usually something gets reported maybe in a, in a local newspaper, then big newspapers pick it up, but then the other local or state newspapers actually then pick up what the what, what, the, what the big um, uh, media outlet uh, actually just published, and, and and then it takes two three weeks if it's really a big story, and then it becomes client uh, becomes a calm again. I want to say becomes quiet again. Except it's a it's what you call a story development. So, so maybe more people are dying, or, or the new relevations, etc. Um, or it's really something that happens all the time, and that's the sort of signals we want to pick up. Now, you've already explained a bit how how it works. You know, the the six week rule, and, and that there's a quantitative score. Obviously, there are many reasonable ways in, in which you could compute such a score. You could take seven weeks, right, or <laughs> or any other number indeed. So one thing I found remarkable that one year ago you, you came out and said, okay, we want to be relatively aggressively transparent uh, about the methodology itself. So why did you decide to do that? There were risks involved in doing that as well, weren't they? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, what you said about our methodology is true. I mean, this is uh, it's not random because it's based on evidence that we have this uh, six-week rule, but you could also take five weeks. Why not? Will probably also work. The key thing is that we have never changed the methodology. So basically... Um, this is how our data set is created, right? So if, 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 if something happens again, uh, we're not interested in this specific incident if it's covered already, except it's a source escalation, so it's a local thing, but it's, it's, it's a global or a state thing, or we have a store expansion I mentioned before. But if, if, if one specific source mentions something and then five weeks later something happens again, then exactly the same story, we don't cover it. If it's six weeks later, we cover it. So that's how we generate the data set. And, and, and they always decisions involved here, how you generate the data set. Uh, on the metric side, anyway, we're fully transparent. We have something you call a Jupyter Notebook, so basically you can download the code together with the with the data and can then play around with, with this. You can even change the parameters, etc. Oh, so um, this is anyone could could go and, and do that and, and play a, a, with anyone, it? Anyone can do that. I mean, that's got, of course, a limited um, uh, data set because the data is real gold. But if, if you go to our website and then something called the Repris Lab, then you find this Jupyter Notebook notebooks and then you find uh, all the metrics and you find all the algorithm how to calculate it but also the corresponding data for, 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 for some example companies and the corresponding what called attribute uh, that you can play around uh, with yes and and this is the the original algorithm as it's used internally well, it's uh, original in the sense that, that the, the Repisk index I meant, meant before, yes, that's the original one. This goes back to 2007. And then we have many others. This Violator Index, Young Global Compact. Um, we have country uh, indices, etc. But going back basically to what you called, uh, um, how did you call it? Uh, a relative aggressive transparency. That's a good term. An <laughs> <laughs> academic term. Actually, we're not really aggressive transparent. We're aggressive transparent. So we're fully transparent because... 
this is one of the big problems of the ESG industry. The ESG industry gets a bit of a bad name because it uh, has happened very often in the past that data got backfilled, for example, um, that um, the methodology could change not not only every year and and in a public way, but 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 even uh, with, with, within a year, and then there were academics then did back tests and, and thought, oh, that's a great signal here for I don't know, um, a trading signal and whatever. But but it was it's, it's complete rubbish, uh, because at this point in time, this data were not available like that, or, or the methodology were changed, or the the way you collect um, and and come up with um, with, with metrics in future. If, will be different and, and it's not comparable to the past, right? So I think um, transparency is a huge issue in the ESG industry and, and uh, here we just said, anyway, transparency is our mission, so let's be very aggressive, not relative aggressive, very aggressive and be fully transparent about that. And uh, of course, not all um, ESG data providers can, can, can follow this example <laughs> because it would be rather embarrassing. <laughs> but uh, uh, quite honestly, I enjoy putting some pressure on, on, on everyone. So, so this is going to be the, uh, the gold standard. So I respect that because this is if you you know it's also a signal even even if people don't themselves look at the methodology as such knowing that it's out there is is a good signal uh, because you expose yourself to that and um, and I think it 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 was and and is a bold move and I certainly hope that that others uh, will will follow suit because it I agree with you the ESG data and rating industry has um, nowadays a reputation problem because because there have been these cases of misconduct let me say I wouldn't necessarily think that they are super pervasive uh, I think uh, there are a lot of people working in this industry you know including in your company who really you know they believe in the mission and they do this also for a reason uh, that they that they want to uh, work for the better world be part of the solution and so forth but but it is important to uh, you know to be and I like this term to be specific about the data generation process like really what does the data actually tell you how was it produced this is important to to base um you know really uh information based decisions on it no i completely agree i think one potentially i don't know how do you deal with that so the news media also has not the you know not a flawless reputation let me say so there is uh, there are cases where things are not reported on uh, there are cases where maybe things are not invented but as you mentioned Obviously, if if Nestle does something wrong, this is big news because everybody knows Nestle. Everybody eats it every day, so, so it's it's close to the heart. And for an editor of a newspaper, it's you know it's obvious that you would include that vis-a-vis -a, -vis a news about some business-to-business -business company who produces steel that nobody has ever heard of, and uh, you know so it's not news. So so how does that affect the interpretation of what? let's say, the RRI would tell us? or Well, for the Reputation Risk Index, RRI actually, um, it doesn't um, try to correct for that because that's what it is. I mean, a good example is a Nestle versus the world's biggest chocolate producer. What is actually the world's biggest chocolate producer it's not it's not a uh, nestle it's I actually think a company it's barry Calibre, uh, isn't barry Calibre. Yeah. i'm pretty sure most people who listen to that have never heard of this company because it's b2b business to business what, what julian said so they have a inherently lower reputation risk so we don't correct for that but for some of the other um metrics that we have 
Um, we actually look at company size. We look where is a company actually uh, headquartered. Where do they operate? Because in, in, in different um, uh, countries, you have different levels of, 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 of transparency. So you can actually correct for, for these factors. Um, so this is one of these data science things we do. So actually, uh, how does how do certain things correlate? So so we didn't talk about that yet. But for each incidence, we have different levels of severity. Is it a very bad uh, form of child labor? Or many children affected, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera? Is it systematic or? Um, in, intentional um, and and um, you can actually see that that for this different as I said before attributes actually and and, and the number of incidents there's a correlation with 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 company headquarters um, company size where they operate etc so th so you you can correct for that um, but it's but it's very very important we do decision support we don't do very consciously what some people call the ESG rating that says okay this is a good company a bad company a sustainable company this is an unsustainable company. We don't do that. So, so we, we, we basically um, tell people there's a big risk that this company is violating, for example, a, a United Nations Global Compact principles or actually is, is, is um, violating uh, the spirit, at least, of, of certain SDGs. Um, so um, it's up to the experts then to, 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 to use that data and, and not that we say we know whether a company is good or bad. Does it happen that companies uh, call at your office and complain that they have a bad rep risk score? Yes, it has happened. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I don't say uh, uh, what companies. Um, so, um, but it's also a good thing uh, and um, that we usually then can engage with these companies. And, and, and uh, uh sometimes it's 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 really with, with evil attempt that basically that they want to sue us or threat us etc uh, but very often actually they're, they're very good uh, conversations about that, especially when we explain the methodology and and um, then um, say we're not judgmental in this sense yeah right okay so maybe to finish it off um you know you've been through a lot uh you know financial crises technological uh disruptions uh with your company and uh you know i'm happy to say that uh, it seems uh, you and the company are doing well but what do you foresee uh for the you know f for your business or for the esg uh field in general in, in the coming year what do you see coming up as sort of potential challenges or, or big things that we'll deal with but let me say what what i what i wish will happen i mean first sure. of all i hope also when it comes to regulation there's much less focus on this um, company self-reporting because it's a huge administrative burden and, and I'm not sure whether it, it helps so much when, when you basically try to report on things like uh, labor issues and, and corruption and how you cut down the, the rainforest. Um, the reporting helps on the other hand for, for everything related to carbon emissions but I think I hope there's much less uh, focus on, on, uh, on reporting. Then the other thing I really hope uh, to happen is that, that um, there are more and more experts in the field that really understand how to use ESG data which also means that then we don't need something like a, like a ESG rating anymore because you really make intelligence, intelligent decisions uh, based on, on the data that, that uh, suit the specific case. Um, and the third thing is, as, as I think, that really focus, in, in, especially in the ESG investing uh, side, on, on where we actually can change things to the good. So I think, and that's a controversial opinion, it's good to, to end this podcast with something controversial, I think we should not 
focus very much on this whole transitioning to a low-carbon economy. Um, because as investor, for example, you look at your portfolio and, and, and the, the, the whole climate problematic, that's a, a systemic uh, issue, right? So, so it doesn't matter what your um, carbon footprint of your portfolio is. It happens actually um, at the global level. So if, 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 you, if, you, if you just invest in one company, not the other, there's no change. If, if, if a company goes private or, or, or sells certain assets, there's no change. So I really think that, that we realize that this whole uh, climate issue, which is close to my heart because I'm a, a climatologist, is really mainly uh, for, for politics and, and regulation and, and carbon pricing and things like that. Well, ESG is really great in, 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 in driving positive change when it comes to business conduct. Thank you so much, Philip, for being on the show. Well, I hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. Innovations in Sustainable Finance. A University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel.